you know, the creative mind is different than the transactional mind. It just is. And, you know, artists have a, 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 such a unique way of thinking about not only their art, but their life and their livelihoods that you have to give them ultimate freedom or you're just going to choke them. And they're, and they're not employees. I mean, the people that we're talking about as salespeople are employees and they're given a remand to do a certain thing, whereas artists are not employees. They're completely free agent. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Andrew Fabricant became Chief Operating Officer of Gagosian Gallery a year before the global pandemic radically transformed the business of dealing art. In this podcast, Fabricant discusses the recent auctions in New York, the unexpected surge in the art market during the pandemic, and what that means for the future of the art market as the global economy rebalances towards a post-pandemic world. We also delve into the opportunities and challenges involved in running an art dealing enterprise with more than 300 employees, 19 locations, and a reputation as an aggressive sales organization. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, Andrew Fabricant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Marianne. Nice to be here. So uh, you just said it's, it's been a wild couple of weeks. Uh, maybe we can start with just briefly having a conversation about the sales that just took place. Uh, there, there was certainly a lot of art sold by my count, about 2.6 and change billion dollars worth of art, uh, including um, $195 million Warhol uh, Marilyn, which your gallery uh, purchased. Uh, so it's certainly a healthy art market, but the, the market at the top seems like one of those moments that comes uh, along uh, every few years where the expectations at the top are, are met but not exceeded. And uh, it feels like with the uh, turmoil in the financial markets that, you know, there, there's a uh, a shift taking place. So I was wondering, you know, what's your takeaway and more importantly, what are your clients take away from all this? I think a lot of this sentiment is that people are calling it, they're calling the top right now. And a lot of what we saw sell was baked into the sales, you know, January, February, March, even early part of April. So the tumult that happened in the equity markets um, really didn't have much to do with pre-existing contracts, conditions, third parties, et cetera. So I think November will be a much more interesting test of the art market's durability in this time of you know, social turmoil, economic turmoil, et cetera. But the short-term analysis is that what you saw during this fortnight was a very healthy art market with some serious extremes, particularly with the now sale or the new now, the old now, I can't remember which now it was, uh, at Sotheby's on Thursday, which you saw prices that were just, I mean, nosebleed, Everest, you know, without supplemental oxygen prices, that as much as I admire some of those artists, it just seems unsustainable. It just does. I mean, you can't have $5 million, you know, paintings selling by 30-year-old artists going forward with any degree of consistency. I mean, these anomalies are always fun to, to examine and talk about. But if you look at the long-term 
fallout from artists who have reached the top and then fall backwards, whether, I mean, we could name names, but there are too many to, to actually itemize. No one wants to talk about them. All they want to talk about is the next tranche of, you know, very hot, hot artists. I mean, Simone Lee is a serious artist. That sculpture was a nice thing, but two and a half million dollars. I mean, well, Christina Quarles is a very good artist yeah, and I agree. moving along very nicely, but she was selling, you know, at five, six hundred thousand dollars. And one could have thought, OK, maybe a million, a million and a half. But that was uh, four and a half that, uh, million dollars or, exactly. or, or more. And this uh, throws everything out of whack, too, because those people who bought early and bought, you know, uh, at a primary level, they're certainly enticed to, to sell when the when the return, the delta from the cost versus the return is so high. So it just it really has it just it, it actually can be extremely deleterious to artists careers, serious artists who are working outside of the market, don't really care about the market necessarily, and then all of a sudden are thrust into this, you know, sort of this popcorn machine where all of a sudden they're coming out selling for $4 million, et cetera. There's, it's very hard to recover from that, not only market-wise, but psychologically, I think. Well, you just mentioned um, November, and I think one of the interesting things about these kinds of moments is, you know, the, everything's baked in up to a point where people feel that they know what a price is and it's easier for people to either deal privately or to do, put a guarantee and get something that they feel like is the price and fine. If you don't agree, you can, you know, have a public auction and if no one else shows up, you'll you'll understand that my price was the best pr price, which is right. effectively what, you know, many of the third party guarantees are. are. But then in a shift like this, we have to go through the process of price discovery all over again. Uh, and, and as you're suggesting, that that certainly takes six months, maybe more than six months. And there's usually often a shift in or a rotation in the kinds of artists because people don't particularly want to sell works that they've paid a lot of money for, for. No one wants to sell that quickly. So if there's going to be stuff to auction and do that price discovery on, it's usually from a, a new crop uh, of artists that come along. And yet, as you just pointed out, that new crop of artists is maybe the place where the, the values are the strongest. Right, but I think the temporality of this is, it's shocking when you have a, like a work of the, like the Gorky drawing from 46 out of the Gumberg collection, which had no bidding at all and sells for under, doesn't sell for under a million dollars that had been in the same private collection for 30 some odd years and was really a great drawing, no interest whatsoever. So you're seeing a real social shift, but you're also seeing you know, a market that is geared to younger artists, geared to speculation, geared geared towards absolute theater. I mean, the auction houses are becoming theatrical events, you know, on, online, in the in-house presentation. It's all about how you perform. And, you know, there are they're, they're hair and makeup people on the in the auction stands, you know, up ahead of the sale, touching these people up because they're going to be on, you know, TV internationally. It's a far cry from what we saw 30 years ago, 20 years ago, when the auction houses were still very vibrant, very much part of the art world, but did not have this glamour. And the glamour pretty much revolves around the recycling of the of, of the young, hot, whatever is of the moment uh, group of artists. And they've capitalized that on a, you know, on a huge scale. Well, or or a significant collection 
mm-hmm. be it Ambass or uh, the Maclows, where there is a story to tell and mm-hmm. that can be presented across, you know, uh, video and their um, various uh, events and presentations. Uh, they've gotten very good at, at least at uh, Sotheby's, of having a script before and after each auction, where, Absolutely. Where, where they're doing the transition from, you know, you've enjoyed this show, now come to the next uh, one. Very true. Um, so uh, I, I did want to talk a little bit about um, the Macla collection. Uh, I think you had um, said uh, last season uh, how much um, Linda Macla had been central to uh, mm-hmm. assembling that uh, collection. Uh, and so I just thought it'd be uh, a nice chance to talk a little bit more now that it's all done. It's been, you know, the, the, the money is a form of validation but for better or for worse. But I think also the, the shape of the collection and now people recognizing the depth of what uh, uh, she put together is part of also the legacy of these sales. It is. I mean, it was it, for her, it was a lifelong pursuit. It was it was a passion. And she she really had her head in the art world and her and her focus in the art world for such a long time and she was a ubiquitous person you know within the galleries and certainly within the auction houses to a lesser extent but certainly within the galleries and the the her eye was very very decisive and it was it was very refined and i would say you know she had a a, a passion primarily for abstraction but she also understood figure of art i mean gustin mixed with the abstract richter i mean there's a lot of crossover but you can see from what she was able to to buy, and that in the beginning, you know, her her means were relatively limited. Her means increased over time, and so the collection developed. I remember when I sold her the, the Black Jackson Pollock; it was the most expensive thing she had ever ever purchased, and it was a huge, you know, a, a occasion for her and a, a cause for a lot of concern and worry. But that was sort of the beginning of the of the of the movement into really really blue chip material and she's she was just relentless i mean she's still relentless i mean she's still very much involved even though the collection's been dispersed she wants to you know continue to buy collect build another collection so she's she's you know unstoppable in that regard um but it was it was a bittersweet you know uh, occasion to have a very public very very contentious divorce that what was it five or six years play out in public and to have this thing court ordered to be sold at auction, I mean, it, it was just wrenching to her and not the way most people would go about it, but that's just how the chips fell. Talk a little bit about um, people like Linda Macklow and what motivates them. You you obviously have a lot of clients either beginning that jer- journey or have uh, uh, been through it the many years you've been do- doing it's this. A, it, it's a virus. I mean, it's like, you know, you have people like Andrew Saul, you have Ronald Lauder, you have Tom Hill, you have all these people who... Once once you got the bug, there's no stopping it. And it's not just collecting for collecting's sake. It's 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 a deeper, life enriching experience because it 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 offers you so much. It evol- it offers you you know this whole world, including a social you know axis that is accessible to anyone. You don't have to be you know some Brahmin or some you know aristocrat to give a couple hundred thousand dollars to an institution. All of a sudden, you're at every dinner. I'm not saying these people do that, but the the art world is very accessible. And once you you have access to it, and once you understand these dynamics, it's 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 a fascinating world in which to operate socially as well as aesthetically and even financially. So, for these types of people, it really is you have a bug, and the bug's not going away. Well, also talk about the risk. I mean, you just mentioned the Pollock Black painting, and and 
you know, that may be of all the things that happened with the sale of that collection, the sort of crowning moment of a, a, a body of work that's that's less was previously valued at, uh, differently from uh, uh, other Pollock works. Uh, and, you know, I understand that for a lot of people that was kind of the best uh, of the black paintings. Uh, yes. I don't know if she felt that way when she bought it. Uh, uh, from she the did. Stories. Arnie Glimsher told her that his was better, but <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just Arnie uh, being Arnie. But uh, love Arnie. But yeah, it, I think it is one of the best. And the provenance of it is extraordinary because it was given to the Met and then the Met deaccessioned it in, in exchange for a drip painting. But there are only there are a few of them five major drip paintings on canvas left in private hands. I mean, so your alternatives are limited. You can go and work on paper, like we saw the one that just sold, or you can buy work on canvas from the period immediately following the drip period. And the black paintings, yeah, they've, they've been second-class citizens for a long time, but beginning with a Gagosian show in the, must have been the, the 80s, with a catalog written by Ben Heller, who owned the most famous one, which is now in the Museum of Modern Art, people started to think differently about them. And she, she certainly did too. So it's, uh, all of Pollock is fascinating, but the black paintings are particularly fascinating because they, they come so radically and so changeably after what this Periclean moment was for him. And some people see them as a fall from grace. Some people see them as, you know, just a, another, another bit of vocabulary that he was employing, but that was really one of the top ones of all time, actually. No, and I, th I think few people realize how brief the period of the drip paintings was relative yeah. to his age and career. And, Absolutely. And that he he sort of moved on from that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, not repeating himself endlessly, looking for something different to do. Yeah, it's always interesting to think, you know, what what if, um, you know, what if Basquiat had lived? What if Pollock had not been, been you know, been, dri been driving that car that evening? You know, it, there's there are always that those what ifs. But you look at a career like Pollock, which is meteoric. I mean, certainly Basquiat's is meteoric in the classic sense of the word. And there's no question there's a mystique around both of these artists that certainly advances all types of interest, whether it's serious collecting or or, or a student in high school. Doesn't matter what. It, it all has a certain resonance, you know, with regard to that romantic notion of the you know the tortured artist, you know, thrusting off the mortal coil too soon, kind of a thing. I think we're seeing something similar at the beginning of that with Matthew Wong. I mean, mm -hmm. there's almost like a second wind in what was already a very heady market, another Indeed. second wind this season uh, with those paintings, which, you know, I, I can see the appeal, but it, it, it will take a longer process for most of that to work out, but there's certainly a mystique there. I think definitely. But again, you have a cultural, social component there that's very compelling as well, just like you have with Basquiat. But people don't remember that you know, Basquiat's last show at Verge Begumian Gallery on Broadway was round, was resoundingly trashed. People didn't like it, didn't sell well. And then after Basquiat's demise, the work didn't sell at all at auction. It was just, it was in, basically in limbo for a while. Then all of a sudden you have this like resurrection of this guy. And, but people don't want to remember what the reality was, you know, after 1987, the, the yeah. years between 1987 and 1990. Well, or even the, 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 20 years it took till uh, 2007 when there was a big sort of exactly. pop in his market. Uh, you know, there have been these successive moments, but that was one and it was 20 Correct. years after the man died. I mean, exactly. a, a, a similar thing happened with Warhol. It, it took quite some time, uh, well, a shorter period of time, but still given his fame uh, and cultural stature, you know, there was a period where 
you know, the Warhols weren't valued that, that greatly or certainly not the way relative uh, numbers to the way they are today. Well, it wasn't helped that the, that the estate tried to devalue the, the total amount of, of total, tried to devalue the estate in order to get a better tax break, which didn't help because you had Andre Emmerich, for instance, take the stand and say that Warhol was a minor artist and he's being paid by the Warhol estate to say these things. It was a little counterintuitive, but you know, that, that's, that's old history too. So um, let's just switch for a second. You've uh, uh, joined Gagosian about four years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, you had previously worked, I don't know, 20 some odd years before that uh, uh, at the gallery. Uh, and I was just sort of curious, you know, how things are going, what your plans are for uh, uh, the future. It's a it's a big operation. I imagine it took several years to get your arms around. Uh, was yeah, it 16, 18 galleries now? It's 19, actually, with over 300 employees. And it it's it's a it's a megalith. I mean, it is just it's unbelievable. But it's been great. I mean, there's been a lot of structural uh, changes within the gallery um, in terms of, you know, a CFO, a chief legal officer, a lot more sort of comprehensive governance, um, just natural in a, in a company that size. But Gagosian, I mean, I gave the example the other, the other day that we had a Michael Heiser show on 21st Street. We had about 120 tons of steel and rock in there. We moved that out, redid the entire gallery, built new walls, and installed Richard Prince Hood Show, which is a comprehensive exhibition of many of his of these major sculptures within two weeks. I mean, there's no other gallery in the world that could do that. And that's sort of the beauty of Gagosian that no is almost a word that's never, you know, uh, comes from Larry's lips. It says, go ahead and do it. He's never questioned the amount of a, of a publication. He's the largest art publisher in the world now. So there's there's a, a great deal to be said for it, but it is a it's a it's a pretty hairy beast at times um, to corral all of this talent because you know the, the art world's different. Everyone in the art world is not working for um, Blackstone. They're all creative types. And they all want to be you know special. But as someone said, if everyone's special, nobody's special, <laughs> and that's the problem with you know an organization of of that size in the art world per se. But how do you deal with, I mean, I know you have a long uh, history uh, with Larry, but, you know, it's an operation very much uh, previously held together by a singular personality uh, right. and, and run by, by all accounts, uh, by sort of sheer force of will, uh, uh, you know, dr driving as a sales organization. And I mean, he, it, it, uh, he seems to be a, a, a natural salesperson, but also understand how to run a sales organization through, you got to keep up with me. Uh, uh, and, and I imagine taking that and then trying to uh, systematize it and, and put structures in place isn't necessarily um, an easy thing uh, uh, to do. Not at all. It's taken me three, almost four years to have certain strictures and certain certain policies in place, but actually I think it's running much better and the artists feel more secure. But the, that, the talent element is very important. And I keep stressing that. I mean, the most important function of Gagosian is to serve the artist and serve the client. Those are our two, that, that's the mission in a nutshell. And Larry's genius is that you know, he has a, a vision that you know, everything can be done quickly, efficiently. He doesn't need to get in the weeds. He lets other people do all of that administrative stuff, all the operations stuff. All he's thinking about is you know, the next big thing. And that's usually a deal or an artist or a concept or, or, or a program. But it's not as if he's you know, sitting there with a T-square and a compass trying to chart out. He's just moving constantly. 
it's my job to make sure that it's all papered and covered and everyone knows you know what's going on and we have a, a functioning body politic that that's where I come in and and keeping that I mean group of uh, salespeople I mean the other thing because uh, is well known for is having uh, uh, an incentive structure that that uh, helps people sell or or gives them uh, every opportunity to sell and benefit for, for, for yeah, sell, selling. But there's there's that, a lot of eat, eat what you kill kind of a yeah. mentality there. But that's also been mollified to a degree. There's a lot more cooperation uh, amongst salespeople now. They, I think, fundamentally realize it's all for the greater good, including themselves. So that's changed considerably. It's still based upon, you know, a commission structure that will certainly benefit you the more you produce. Uh, Larry insists upon that, and I can see why, because it, it, it incentivizes people in, in a way that no other, no other facet can really attempt to. You also just said uh, uh, something that touches on, uh, uh, I, I guess, an observation I've always had. The, the unique thing about Gagosian Gallery hasn't been its size. It isn't necessarily even its artists, though you, know, you have many of the world's greatest artists. It has always struck me that all galleries are there to serve the artists and focus on artists. Gagosian seems to have figured out that the clients are just as important as the artists and that mm -hmm. creating a, a roster of clients and, and making them feel secure and part of the, the gallery, making it almost a, um, a, a badge of honor to have bought through Gagosian, which for you know many people in the uh, uh, other worlds but who enter the art world, buying from your gallery is actually uh, the same kind of status thing as buying from the auction houses is for, for, for people. It is. It has to do with a certain branding of Gagosian now after 40 some odd years. It also has to do with Larry's you know, personal charisma. It also has to do with Larry's just complete you know, compulsion in a good way to keep clients close and to keep them involved, whether it's socially or financially, you know, in terms of buying work or socially in terms of gatherings and events and openings. He's, he's a master at that. And he's been able to get this group of people, you know, within his orbit and again, service them. And he, they serve, it's, it's a very mutual, mutually dependent, mutually beneficial relationship, but he's, he's been a master at that over the, over the course of his career. And, and I also get the feeling that one of the secrets is no, selling things that people know can be sold again, right? Mm -hmm. the, it's like a house. Everyone wants a house for all sorts of reasons, but no one wants to lose money on the, the, their Correct. house, or at least they want to know that they you know, can, can get some of their money out, out of the uh, house. And, and it always seems to me one of the secrets of your gallery is that you have a large network, but you also stand behind the work and there's always someone in line may not always be to your advantage, but it, 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 like any asset, there is some asset value that can be um, accessed. You know. That's true because, because the gallery is very covetous of, you know, of, and very protective of its artists. And we, we, go, we go to great, to great lengths to, to protect our artists at auction, for instance, more so than most galleries that, uh, that I know of, perhaps more so than any. And the artists appreciate that. Uh, they really do uh, because it affects them more and more these days when you have intelligent artists who many of our artists have an eye on them on the market they just have to because of the numbers involved so the fact that these artists can be sold and resold it's a it's a burden for us but it's also a benefit because it's a benefit to the collector but a burden for us too because we need to protect you know their careers and their markets and sometimes that can be a little bit hazardous in terms of cash flow you know it all those all those forces, but it, it's something we, we try to do. We're not 
we're not inf infallible, obviously, but we do it to a, to a great extent. Well, the Amon sale was a, a great example. It's not just the, the the Marilyn, but there were several Twombly's and a couple of Rice Martins that uh, yeah, Gagosian was there. Yeah, that, that sale would have been rather uh, a, a lesser event had it not been for Gagosian. And, and I think Christie's knows that full well. <laughs> and is that... Do, when when you guys are doing that, uh, you were doing it for clients or a mixture of clients and, um, you know, inventory. all I can say is it's a, it's a mixture. Yeah. It's always a mixture. Yeah. And, and you are, just mentioned, you know, many of these uh, artists are running sizable businesses of their own with their own infrastructure uh, that you are the sort of distribution network uh, on. But that means you have to work with them in ways that both benefit and are mindful of their um you know, needs either buying back work the, themselves or uh, uh, giving you work or giving your clients access to, uh, to, to work. I, I, my impression is that's changed over the last five or 10 years as the way the sort of the art world works, less about, less dependent entirely upon you, your gallery to be the backstop and more of an interplay between galleries and artists. I think that we are more of a backstop than any of the, any other galleries who work with artists that we perhaps share with other people. And we, we are collaborative in terms of backstopping with people like Georg Boslitz and things of that sort. But on the whole, I would say that we are right out in front in terms of, of, of backstopping artists, particularly you know, in public sale, certainly privately, but it's, it's a big part of our business. It, it reinforces you know, our belief in those artists and it makes those artists feel comfortable that they're in the right spot. And, and I suppose it also gives you uh, a, a little mutuality right? because it gives you access to work, uh, uh, current work or recent work that others might not get because you've uh, been participating in. in the it's, it's definitely a bonding device and it does have lasting consequences all, all for the good. And I guess the last thing is just to talk about that kind of transition. I mean, you, you, you deal in a lot of the best names of that period that we're now talking about in, you know, a Twombly is a good example. There was a blackboard that sold um, uh, at Sotheby's for half what one sold for, I think, six or seven uh, years ago. I, I presume that's as much an opportunity as it is a, um, you know, a, a risk in the mar market. The, those paintings uh, will, will sort of rise and fall, but more likely to rise over time. Uh, but you also, you have many uh, mid-career artists and more, as time goes on, you've been hiring yes. uh, people to bring in more, more artists like the artists we discussed earlier who are, you know, very much uh, uh, in, in demand. So how do you balance that? Is it just by feel? Is there, you know, is there some spreadsheet that you know, helps you figure the, this out? I'm sort of curious, the, the decision making, not the specific decisions, not names, but how you guys sort of manage all of that. Again, it's about the sort of how do you manage such a large organization with so many? We have a group of, sen of senior people, uh, particularly those involved with the exhibitions who have a try to speak with a unified voice. But, uh, but Larry has ultimate veto power. If Larry's interested in showing someone, no matter what the merits, he won't. But there is a general consensus in terms of developing um, new artists to the stable uh, or trying to find estates, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it, it, it's, it's one man basically saying yes or no, ultimately, but there's a lot of, there's a whole groundswell of influence that, that, that comes, to, comes to play and how we go about that. 
But is it, I mean, is it like you have an investment committee meeting once every, you know, two weeks or is it more? It's more of a, it's more, it's more exhibitions committee and, and people put forth um, propositions for, for showing new artists, you know, trying to show artists who are already established, trying to establish structures and strategies by which you can say, well, I like this guy, what he's showing here. What can we do to maybe entice him to show in Rome and then maybe show in Hong Kong, and then maybe ultimately show in New York. So there's a lot of that strategizing, because as you know, it's extremely competitive out there. And a lot of mid-career artists at, I don't want to say mid-level galleries, because that sounds deprecating, And but you, you understand what I'm trying to get at. They're not at the level of Pace, Kagosian, Hauser, and Worth, et cetera. So there's a whole sort of AAA farm team out there of, of galleries that the big guys prey upon. Let's, let's, let's just call it well, what it I, is. I mean, in your defense, you have probably, or you, but Gagosian as a gallery has come up with a better formula, to my understanding, of being able to say to people, look, we've got lots of collectors. These are, they're interested in your artist. All we want is an ac access to work for everyone's benefit. Let's work out a deal rather than we need to take your artist from you per se. Say where we've got the again, we've got this great reach. We we have uh, loyal people. We want to be able to give them access and you, uh, vice versa. Exactly, but we also have geographical reach that nobody else has. So you want to establish a market in Asia. You want to establish a market in Europe. You want to establish a market, you know, wherever you want. We can we can supply that for you. And that's important in this day and age is to have a global market, which is why you know, I've been so interested in trying to you know, have some of our more successful artists like Jonas Wood and Mark Rojan show in Hong Kong. Now we have a European beachhead that we're establishing for them. And it makes, it makes a huge difference to the career, it makes a huge difference to the artists themselves personally. It really just, it's a, it's a blandishment that nobody else can really, can really offer to the level that we can. You want to show in, you want to you know have a show in Stad you know in February when the skiing's great come to you know we can talk to you about it so but it sounds also... facile but it's true I mean this this is this is something that is uh, it, it's uh, it's it's certainly an asset and an attraction and, and but also the the willingness to not fight over artists I mean many of your artists also have or will do shows with other galleries uh, and and that doesn't seem to be an issue for for you guys it would uh, seem it it always is but i have the opinion that if you start shackling these artists they're, they're just going to they're just going to basically revolt and chafe at that being shackled enough freedom is is fine because if you give them enough freedom they're always going to be you know sort of recycle back to you so I mean, Mark Grosjean had a remarkable exhibition in, La in Los Angeles last year at Blum and Poe, and so we're going to be showing him more paintings, bigger paintings in uh, Grosvenor Hill in October during freeze. So it, it's it's a lot of give and take, and again, you know, too much control leads to an unhappy feeling. Well, you know, it, it sounds like the reverse of the sales model we were talking about er earlier. The best mm -hmm. way to uh, manage the sales force is to sell a lot and tell them to keep up with you. The best way right. to, to keep an artist uh, in your stable is to sell a lot and uh, advance right. their career, get them more and different uh, collectors. So it's a benefit to them, not a, um, a But the creative aspect of, you know, the creative mind is different than the transactional mind. It just is. And, you know, artists have a, 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 such a unique way of thinking about not only their art, but their life and their livelihoods that you have to give them ultimate freedom or you're just going to choke them. And they're, 
and they're not employees. I mean, the people that we're talking about as salespeople are employees and they're given a remand to do a certain thing. Whereas artists are not employees. They're completely free agent. Well, but that, and, but that is also a, a change. It's been happening for a long time, but it seems to have accelerated in the last 10 years where the artists now run a studio that is yeah. more than just we're producing this work. The studio is a, is a business entity and manages the various gallery relationships, tries to plot out these things. And I assume, you know, again, some of the financial stuff, it's no, you know, there was a time when a lot of artists would take a stipend from the gallery and yep. their work would be promised. Exactly. Now they have an, now they have an MBA running their studio. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> well, does that make life easier or harder? Easier by far, by far. <laughs> Because it's just data. It, there's yeah. no emotion. It's just data. I, th I I I presume that this is going to continue. I mean, I you know uh, I've said in the past that the art world is a bit like the food world was 30 years ago, um, and I feel like we're still only kind of halfway through it. It's become incredibly yeah. popular, and people are very conversant. You uh, you know your venues though though they're primarily there for the people who buy from them. The capacity is enormous, and you run yeah. a lot of people through them. Mary, you're the only person who's ever compared Larry Gagosian to Alice Waters, but it's pretty good. <laughs> I love it. That is actually, I, I wouldn't have gone there, but I think that's actually spot on. Uh, <laughs> it kind of uh, is. No, no, it, it, yeah. it takes that kind of figure to, yeah. you know, uh, uh, really uh, focus people's uh, attention, and it is uh, bringing it to a large number of people over time Absolutely. and having people emulate it. And so it, it, versions of what Alice Waters did appear in cities all over America now. Exactly, true. Well, great. This has been a lot of fun, Marion. It's been great. Thank you so much, Andrew. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.